evening and welcome. My name is Charles Stang. I'm the director here at the CSWR, the Center for the Study of World Religions. Thank you all for coming out this evening. And I'd like to thank the center's staff for making this event possible. And let me begin by reminding you to silence your phone, please. So it's my distinct honor and pleasure to welcome Professor Cornell Brooks this evening to deliver the annual Greeley Lecture in Peace and Social Justice. We're trying a different format. However, the Greeley Lecture will in fact be a conversation. So this is going to be a conversation between Professors Cornell Brooks and my HDS colleague, Professor Todney Thomas. I'll introduce them both in a moment, but before I do, permit me just a brief word about this lecture, uh, this annual lecture, and the series of which it's a part. This is the second year in which we've devoted the annual Greeley Lecture to the Center's new programming thread on race, religion, and nationalism. Last year, Kelly Brown Douglas, the Dean of the Episcopal Divinity School, uh, inaugurated the new iteration of the series with a lecture entitled Claiming God's Peace When Whiteness Stands Its Ground. So the series is meant as a response to the fact that we are witnessing today an alarming rise in old nationalisms, each of which deploys openly or covertly the rhetoric of race and racial hierarchy and of religion and religious hierarchy. We see this happening across Europe, in the Middle East, in India, and of course, right here in the United States, where white Christian nationalism now has a strong foothold in the executive branch of the federal government, perhaps elsewhere. This series at the center seeks to critically examine this phenomenon at home and abroad, locally and globally. We want to ask such questions as, to what degree does religion fuel this racialized nationalism? In the American context, for example, how does Christianity support white nationalism? To what degree is white nationalism a kind of religion itself, with its own myths, rituals, and ways of life? To what degree are different racialized nationalisms affiliating with each other to form international networks? Sadly, these are not unfamiliar questions to our two guests, whom I should now introduce. Let me begin with my colleague, Tommy Thomas. Professor Thomas is a sociocultural anthropologist and assistant professor of African American religions here at HDS, and the Susan Young Murray assistant professor at the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study. Professor Thomas conducts ethnographic research on the racial, spatial, and familial dynamics of black Christian communities in the U.S. Her current research examines the familial and spiritual experiences of black evangelicals and the neoliberal displacement of black sacred space. She'll be leading tonight's discussion with Professor Brooks. Cornell Brooks is professor of the practice of public leadership and social justice at the Harvard Kennedy School. He's also the director of the William Morrow Trotter Collaborative for Social Justice at the school's Center for Public Leadership and a visiting scholar here at Harvard Divinity School. Professor Brooks is the former president and CEO of the NAACP, a civil rights attorney, and an ordained minister in the AME Church. Under his leadership, the NAACP secured 12 significant legal victories, 
including laying the groundwork for the first statewide legal challenge to prison-based gerrymandering. Among the many demonstrations from Ferguson to Flint during his tenure, he conceived and led, quote, America's Journey for Justice, a march from Selma, Alabama to Washington, D.C., over 40 days and 1,000 miles. Prior to leading the NAACP, Professor Brooks was president and CEO of the New Jersey Institute for Social Justice, where he led the passage of pioneering crim criminal justice reform and housing legislation with six bills in less than five years. So the discussion this evening is entitled Faith and Faustian Bargains, Compromise, Complicity, and Courage in Leadership. Professors Brooks and Thomas will engage in conversation for about 45 minutes or so, and then they'll open it up for questions and discussions. And because it may be hard for either of them to see the whole room, I'll return to the podium to call on folks for questions. So thank you again for joining us this evening for this lecture. Without further ado, then, please join me in welcoming Professors Cornell Brooks and Todd Newton. Thanks, sir. So every once in a while, you have that rare service opportunity that doesn't feel like service, right? <laughs> Uh, where you get to feel the real privilege and advantages of the job. And so this is one of those moments. So I'm, I'm genuinely and sincerely thrilled to be in conversation with you and to learn from you uh, this evening. So thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for joining us. It's going it's to be a good time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's reassuring. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd like to start um, just by outlining the concept of the Faustian bargain, right? Um, which, you know, in, in sort of previous conversation and writing, you've explored as a kind of white evangelical decision to undermine or abandon their moral principles and faith commitments to sort of attain more power and control through bipartisan politics. So could you talk a little bit more about how you conceptualize this bargain? What brought you to um, sort of frame and, and think that through and some of the implications of this, this Faustian bargain. Sure. Well, first of all, let me, let me just say um, um, a word of appreciation to the, uh, to the dean, um, certainly to Charles and uh, the Institute, uh, to Eric for his uh, great research, uh, and to you and to all of you. Uh, this is uh, an incredibly important conversation at a particularly pivotal time. So coming to this evening, uh, to this room this evening and discussing and engaging this, this question of a Faustian bargain. Uh, this conversation takes place at a moment in which uh, the country is uh, uh, deeply divided uh, along uh, racial lines, uh, class lines. Uh, we see over the course of the last three years a uh, precipitous rise in, in hate crimes uh, categorically across the board. Uh, particularly crimes uh, based on race, but also ethnicity, um, uh, based on uh, LGBTQ uh, status. Uh, so this is a very, very serious moment. And so this conversation really takes place uh, in the midst of a great deal of moral anxiety. And so to talk about a Faustian bargain, uh, for me, it means as a civil rights lawyer and as a uh, minister of, of the church, it 
uh, is really my observation that where we came through the 2016 election, where the two most accurate predictors of who voted for whom mm -hmm. at the top of the ticket were race and religion. Specifically, uh, religious identification and racial apprehension. Mm -hmm. Namely, racial identification as in being evangelical, 81, 82% voting for uh, the president. Racial apprehension, namely when you ask voters what are you most concerned about? Anxieties around immigration, anxieties around is the country going too far, becoming too diverse? And so race and religion drove, much more so than economic anxieties, the outcome of the last election. Now, when we begin to talk about evangelicals and we begin to talk about this notion of essentially uh, making a deal with the devil, engaging in a, a bargain, what we see is a relative silence on issues uh, ranging from uh, voter disenfranchisement, uh, policing, environmental racism, uh, many of the issues that animate much of the discussion, particularly among discussion of social justice, particularly among millennials. On the other hand, we, we uh, hear some volubility, if you will, on uh, issues around um, abortion. Um, uh, the cultural divide. And so there's silence and volubility. Um, an engagement with respect to uh, the appointment of conservative members of the court. And so where we have uh, polling data that makes it very clear that evangelicals vote not on the basis of religious beliefs but on political concerns that are largely the same as um, conservative members of the Republican Party. Now that's not a partisan indictment, it's a sociological observation and a theological observation that goes to the heart of how we as a, a body of believers, writ broadly, writ inclusively, relate to one another. And it has everything to do with not only moral discourse, but how we pursue social justice. Now there's, um this, this tethering of religion, race, and the Faustian bargain, and you know, as someone who teaches around this, who's teaching around mm. this right now, who writes around this, where do religious concerns begin and end? Where do racial concerns begin and end? And so this concept of the Faustian bargain, this sort of electoral polling data, sort of shows the, the continued need to sort of continue to explore that. Mm -hmm. So it strikes me that this, this sort of, this bargaining, the silence on certain issues, right? Volubility on other issues, speaks to a kind of theopolitics, mm -hmm. right? Um, where people have ostensibly very important and seminal theological ideas, right? Mm -hmm. about, about God, about community, um, and, and also sort of very material conditions and concerns, politics, mm -hmm. right? So how does this Faustian bargain perhaps remap um, how we think about the placement of religion and race, the placement of theology versus politics mm -hmm. and their overlap from your, from your purview? Mm -hmm. You know, it's, 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 it's hard not to assess theopolitics um, without, uh, 
looking at through purely utilitarian lens, mm. right? So in other words, uh, one can look at the way we vote and engage social justice issues or not, um, our engagement with politics or not, or retrenchment from the world or not, um, in utilitarian terms. In other words, what's best? Uh, so for example, when Franklin Graham says that uh, there's certain behavior that we can forgive, we can overlook uh, in terms of the president, uh, we can give him a mulligan, right? Uh, he's, he's saying essentially, in terms of repentance and forgiveness, in terms of redemption, we start the clock over once the president becomes president. Now, that's, you can talk about that in, in, in political terms as in, look, we're concerned about the appointment of judges, we're concerned about a, a policy agenda, but that's not the way that was described. It was a golf metaphor going to how we look at, how we regard someone in terms of their moral stature. So in other words, um, there were things that we were uncomfortable with in the campaign. We got beyond that, we cast a ballot. Um, let's start the clock over because he's president. Well, that, that would be interesting if you were just simply talking about Democrats or Republicans, but you're really going beyond that, right? And so, so looking at this in going beyond the kind of utilitarian uh, political crassness to really looking at some of the claims. So when we talk about engaging and retreating from the world, so to the extent that um, evangelicals are acting like fundamentalists and retreating on certain issues in a racially selective way, we have to examine that and, and examine not only the policy implications, but the theological implications. The implications here are massive. So when it comes to, let's, let's be very concrete. So for example, in the state of Florida, when Amendment 4 was passed, which enfranchised those who were previous, previously disenfranchised, we saw on one day, one million people enfranchised out of the 6.1 million people who are disenfranchised as a consequence of having a felony conviction. We saw the evangelicals within the state of Florida split on the issue. The Heritage Foundation and uh, I think the, the, one of the leading uh, evangelical organizations choose to be silent as opposed to announcing opposition, others lining up behind the amendment. Tremendous implications for voting rights in this country, where you had one out of every 10 voters in the state of Florida disenfranchised as a consequence of having a felony conviction, and where evangel the evangelical vote was critical, and where more people were enfranchised in one day than, going, than any time going back to the 26th Amendment in terms of women getting the right to vote. So in other words, this is not uh, a theological debate to be discussed on the sidelines. This has to be discussed in the context of the center of our democracy. Right? So there's that uh, uh, ambivalent embrace or retrenchment from the public sphere. Uh, but you can talk about policing. Uh, you can talk about environmental uh, justice issues. The whole range of issues where how we frame evangelical theology the distinctions we make between evangelical theology and fundamentalist theology and the left or the right, Republican or Democrat, conservative or liberal,
has everything to do with how much social justice we get in long and the short term. So it's almost uh, thinking about a refundamentalization potentially of evangelicalism, and that might be, we might be seeing a new epoch within evangelical history. Mm -hmm. right? um, there's this, it strikes me that in the sort of two examples that you uh, just outlined, um, the idea of giving a mulligan, right? Or, or really just, you know, uh, an, a, a kind of way in which born-again conversion and forgiveness is extended, mm -hmm. right, to certain kinds of situated actors. Right. Um, and the ways in which certain modes of forgiveness, right, or a, a concession for born-again conversion and, and regeneration are withheld from certain kinds of uh, actors, for instance, incarcerated people, right? So this idea of theopolitics, that, th that people have potential theological ideals, but politics determines who those ideals are extended to mm -hmm. and who they're withdrawn from or withheld from, mm -hmm. right? And so I'm thinking about, you know, a conversation, um, you know, a sort of example um, that we discussed before, and that is, for instance, the Christian idea of the Great Commission, mm -hmm. right? But before um, we get to that, can we can we just hit a hit a pause button on this notion of conversion, right? Right. Think about this. So, to the extent we have evangelicals who may render the conversion experience, the salvation experience, in microscopically individualized terms, right? right? The individual has a salvific experience, a conversion experience. The president is extended grace or forgiveness as an individual, separate and apart, distinct from uh, the larger political process, uh, the, the larger um, happenings uh, in our democracy. Consider this. When we think about criminal justice reform, we talk about forgiveness, redemption, uh, a second chance. We think about individuals turning their lives around. Individuals are re-entering society. But if we were to think about forgiveness and redemption in broader terms, macro terms, policy terms, when there are 48,000 collateral sanctions, that is to say legal um, prohibitions, legal bars imposed on people post-conviction. So in other words, once you're convicted of a felony, losing the right to vote, losing the right to housing, losing the right to public benefits, losing the right uh, to pursue and compete for any number of jobs, 48,000 laws on the books at the state and federal level. Tens of thousands more that we have not yet counted right. at the municipal level. Literally, the American Bar Association has a ticker on its website that is yet counting the innumerable bars. So if we think about this in, in legal and policy terms, that's a way of extending forgiveness, grace, and redemption. That is to say, regarding a human being as a moral equal, redeemed, uh, fit to be embraced in society. So the president gets an individualized, politicized, theologically retrofitted uh, extension of salvation and forgiveness as a mulligan. We have 2.2 million people behind bars, 70 million Americans with criminal records who are categorically at a macro level, at a policy level, left unforgiven and unredeemed. So our definition of salvation, redemption, forgiveness as individualized or macro, uh, or racialized, racialized uh, anything but communal, 
has everything to do with how we embrace and engage people as citizens uh, and as persons in the society. So that's a big deal. The mulligan is not just a metaphor. It's a, it's a big deal. No, I mean, I, I also think about, you know, so my writing is about black evangelicals mm -hmm. and, and how black evangelicals navigate family values mm -hmm. language, right? Especially as people of African descent who dealt with the weight of pathology on black mm -hmm. family systems. Mm -hmm. And so to, to have done field work with black evangelicals in Atlanta who spent a great deal of time thinking, um, critiquing, trying, crying, building together to make families mm -hmm. and to navigate a heteronormative family ideal mm -hmm. and then see an election where someone completely sidesteps a certain kind of evangelical heteronormative script and it's fine, mm -hmm. right, was a kind of intellectual vertigo I have yet to recover from. <laughs> right? um, I want to return. I don't, I don't have any medication for that. Listen, that's what writing is for, right? Um, I want to return to this this idea of, you know, of conversion as individual or communal, mm -hmm. um, and and think about other kinds of 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 sort of Christian principles, mm -hmm. right? That um, for some reason don't seem to be sort of central principles that we see within sort of a kind of civic evangelicalism, but that's still a part of sort of the, the Christian, Judeo-Christian worldview. So this idea, for instance, of the Great Commission or the way in which the Bible talks about the treatment of the stranger mm. versus immigration policy, mm -hmm. right? Um, and, and, and thinking about why is it that certain ideas or morals or um, perspectives or processes like conversion and forgiveness become foregrounded. But other ideas, like the Great Commission, which is an inherently collective notion, um, become marginalized within a certain kind of civic evangelical uh, sort of discourse. What's, what's your take on that? So both, both, as, a, both as, a, as a civil rights lawyer and as a minister, um, I don't have vertigo, but it's, it's really like a, being in a perpetual state of being perplexed. Here's what I mean. So to the extent that we have the Great Commission being greatly truncated and circumscribed in terms of immigration policy, and what I mean by that is to the extent uh, that we are charged to, to, to make disciples, uh, as long as we don't make disciples um, in ways that cross borders, right? Uh, or we define um, who is a stranger in ways that leave out gender. Mm -hmm. Concrete example, in terms of public policy, when the Attorney General uh, leads the Department of Justice to reconsider domestic violence, spousal abuse, which perpetuated largely against women, and invalidate that as a means of seeking refugee status and asylum. This is a gender truncation, gender circumscribing of policy, but it's also because the, 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 our former attorney general also invoked scripture, mm -hmm. invoked the book of Romans. In other words, in terms of us uh, being a lawful government, uh, a government that has, has some, um, you know, some semblance of, of being endorsed by God, 
that this is a rationale for us adhering to a policy in terms of family separation, but underneath that policy or beside that policy, um, invalidating the basis upon which women uh, can seek asylum to this country in contravention of human rights norms. Now this is, a, this is critically important because we focused on the policy but lost sight of the fact that we redefine the stranger. We redefine who we deem to be a refugee, whom we, who we deem to be ineligible to provide radical hospitality as in protection, right on our southern border. This was in incredible. And what we saw was many of my evangelical brothers and sisters lamenting the, these horrific images on television of children weeping for their parents. But nobody thinking about the fact, no one expressing moral outrage on women weeping in the wake of not being able to escape their, um, um, their abusers. Right. That's a real, that's, I mean, that's a gigantic theological um, problem. Uh, the likes of which we've not really grappled with, or do I think we've really brought to the fore. So in other words, we've expressed moral revulsion over crying children, but mm, um, gender-based violence. Yeah, that's a debate for the lawyers. Yeah, I mean, it's, it strikes me that there is this um, contraction, right? Mm -hmm. So, forgiveness becomes an individual matter, right? The the stranger, right, becomes. Uh, just like uh, the the country and geopolitics and the border, the stranger becomes contracted, right? Uh, as something that excludes women mm -hmm. fleeing gender-based violence, right? It's something that becomes patriarchally, patriarchally mm -hmm. <laughs> defined, right? Yeah. And so one of the things that, you know, occurs to me is how this sort of theological contraction, mm -hmm. right, the extension of certain kinds of graces, right? Mm -hmm. The e extension of certain kinds of statuses and protections, the retrenchment of it mm -hmm. uh, aligns with what we see with neoliberal forms of governance, mm -hmm. right? And that is uh, neoliberalism as a mode of, of, of government where the state increasingly withdraws resources, mm -hmm. public infrastructure mm -hmm. is, is thinned, right? Mm -hmm. People are increasingly expected to rely upon privatized mm -hmm. um, resources, right? Mm -hmm. So healthcare is a matter of your individual healthcare provider and not a, a public good, right? Or I mean, I think about just the fact that more likely to use Amazon than public libraries, right? But that, you know, that that there is a, a withdrawal, a contraction of the state itself, right? right. That has to do with, um, you know, a different approach that was seen to reverse a kind of social welfare state. Right. So how, how can we conceptualize this theopolitics, this mm -hmm. evangelical theopolitics of contraction with a, an approach to government that we're increasingly seeing, mm -hmm. right? A privatized government, yep, yep. the thinning of public infrastructure. Mm -hmm. um, I would also add, probably as troubling, is the substitution of, of market explanations. That's part of neoliberalism right? too. And uh, market rationale for morally principled uh, rationale for 
public or communal engagement. Mm -hmm. And so with respect to immigration policy, if we move from uh, so-called chain migration uh, or family reunification as a, as a grounding for immigration policy to one that is skill-based. In other words, those who come to this country are here based on their ability to contribute to markets, okay? Uh, strengthen labor markets. Uh, there's been a subtle shift there, not merely in terms of retrenchment from the public square, but a, but a substitution of a market for morality. Market for morality. Mm -hmm. That's pr precisely it. But the problem is that when we look at immigration policy, it is, it is non not only gender subscribed, but certainly racialized. So if we, if we look at immigration policy going back um, uh, to, the, to the 20s, and we also look at, say, for example, the evolution of the, of the Ku Klux Klan, right? So the Ku Klux Klan came into being, I should say the resurgence of the post-Reconstruction Ku Klux Klan, came into being as a consequence of this, um, you know, I, I would call it two Corinthians Christianity, kind of very thin Christianity, a kind of subverted patriotism, mm -hmm. um, but also um, um, immigration policy. Absolutely. Okay? It's nativist. And, it, nativist. And so the, the point being here is either our religion, our faith is being corrupted, uh, or it's being co-opted. Mm -hmm. In either case, we've not been as clear as we might be, now, and again, I'm not talking about engaging in theological finger pointing, but rather really being clear about what, what the challenge is, right? So it's, it can be not just uh, providing an evangelical neoliberal veneer over our uh, xenophobia, uh, our, our nativism, but being clear about the degree to which neoliberalism co-opted by evangelicalism uh, are mutually reinforcing and, 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 and dangerous, right? Um, this, is, this is really a, um, you know, a, a great matter of concern because as a, as a civil rights lawyer, frankly, when you're in a, if you're working in the state legislature trying to get reform, you see these arguments. People aren't calling them neoliberal arguments. Right. But you see moral arguments taking a back seat. You see people of faith being discredited, delegitimized, their arguments being delegitimized uh, because there are these racialized and gender circumscribed neoliberal arguments subverting, undermining mm -hmm. uh, moral arguments, co-opting, and then sometimes evangelical arguments um, simply being the, being the veneer or in fact driving the, the entire endeavor. Real world co consequences in terms of immigration policy, uh, criminal justice reform, uh, again, uh, environmental justice uh, challenges as well. Right, and think of uh, a student uh, in my neoliberalism class last semester wrote a paper about um, informatics and algorithms, right, right? Um, mm -hmm. in, in terms of um, predicting um, uh, crime, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so the ways in which there's an emphasis on techno-rationality, informatics, mm -hmm. right? predictive, you know, logic and that being the thing that drives decision making mm -hmm. versus, you know, moral languages of, of redemption or forgiveness, mm -hmm. um, of reconciliation, mm -hmm. right? Um, and, and that being sort of the thing that drives uh, conviction, that drives how particular spaces are, are rendered, that drives policing, right? Mm -hmm. Policing practices as mm -hmm. well. So, I mean, what does this mean? I mean, 
certainly there's a way in which there can be a holy or unholy alliance between mm -hmm. a certain technical approach to governance and, and, and evangelicalism. But at what point should there be a concern that even evangelical moral discourse uh, stands to be potentially usurped? Right, right. Um, it, it, if you all don't mind, if I can just paint a picture, because sometimes when we talk about um, informatics and algorithms, it, it, it's, um, you know, it's, it's mathematically pretty, but it's not morally clear. And here's what I mean. So where in a, in a city you have police departments using big data and algorithms to essentially predict who's likely to be a victim of a crime and who's likely to perpetuate a crime. So if you can imagine any of you um, being in your home or apartment and having the police arriving at your door, and saying to you, um, uh, Charles, um, we based upon the data that we have, you're likely to be a victim of a crime. Um, your neighbor uh, is likely to, um, to pose a threat to you. Uh, or coming to your home and saying, you know, we have every reason to believe that you're going to kill your neighbor. Um, so we're watching you. Uh, we've allocated resources, as in policing resources, to this neighborhood based upon this algorithm. So this, you know, based upon these formulas that are often racialized, right? In other words, where we allocate police resources based upon arrests, and arrests have everything to do with where we've decided to place police resources. So again, this might not be particularly clear, but when one of my colleagues uh, who, had, who led the, the Chicago Police Department um, and who formerly led the Newark Police Department said to me once, listen, if you are standing on a corner in Newark, New Jersey at 2 o'clock in the morning, I don't care how you're dressed, I don't care what kind of car you drive, I don't care what your criminal record is, you're going to be locked up. You're going to be picked up. That's simply the way it is. So how does this relate to evangelicalism? To the extent that there's certain spaces we retreat from, it allows neoliberal rationalizations and rationale to substitute for moral engagement. So for example, we say because we want to get racialized discretion out of policing, because we want to get racial bias out of sentencing, we're going to rely on big data. We're going to rely on algorithms. We're going to rely on these technocratic methods to sentence people uh, based upon assumptions of guilt. So in other words, you can lose your liberty as a consequence of an algorithm that is proprietary information. You know, don't know what goes in it. And those moral voices that might be uh, a corrective are silence. Because we've chosen to be silent. Because of withdrawal and the bargain. Uh, that's right. Moral withdrawal. A moral withdrawal, a Faustian bargain, a utilitarian bargain. So they're real world consequences. So for example, in a city like, uh, to say, in uh, a city like Chicago, where policing resources are allocated based upon data. This has everything to do with what a community looks like. And so the point being here is this, this interesting theological debate has life and death consequences. In other words, it's not merely our silence, it's also our absence. And bad things happen when we're not present. I'm also thinking about what a certain kind of algorithmic approach to policing, right? Someone mm -hmm. knocking on your door and saying, you're likely to be harmed by someone in your community, mm -hmm. or you're likely to harm someone in your community, how that thins the neighborhood, mm -hmm. how that thins community life, 
how that shapes people's willingness or investments in social justice and a sense of the collective versus people withdrawing into a certain kind of private, in, more individualistic folk, I'll take care of mine, you take care of yours, right? And so this approach, right, to, to policing, to governance is something that reproduces the cycle, right, of, of, of this sort of theological contraction, yeah, right? Yeah. Of, of I'm gonna take care of this sort of private domain, mm -hmm. but the public collective good, which animates social justice, mm -hmm. I'm not worried about that. I'm trying not to get killed by my neighbor. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, so to the extent that it leads to a kind of moral resignation, right? To the, to the extent that uh, the world is an irredeemably uh, corrupt and bad place um, where really um, our only escape hatch, if you will, um, is uh, our individualized salvation right. uh, and the rapture. Right. Fundamentalism. It, fundamentalism. But, but, you know, but the problem here is we're, we're really selective about it, right? So when it comes to criminal justice reform, yes. Uh, so in other words, when it comes to live black and brown children who stand on the edges of the prison industrial complex, uh, we withdraw from that or we're selectively silent. When it comes to unborn children, uh, we're vocal and visible. It has profound consequences. Right, right. So uh, I teach a lot about counter-narrative. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes controversially. Uh, I, I'm thinking, That's a surprise. <laughs> uh, I'm thinking about, you know, um, the ways in which the potential for undoing this Faustian bargain, mm -hmm. right? Um, I'm thinking about um, some of the examples you have from your own um, background, mm -hmm. right, in, in terms of organizing and social justice initiatives where we see people breaking out of a kind of theopolitics of self-interest, a, a mm -hmm. theopolitical contraction, mm -hmm. right? And so um, your work in New Jersey around yeah. Ban the Box yeah. strikes me as um, a really poignant and I think very luminous example of the kinds of potentialities that exist out there for, for moving beyond uh, Faustian bargaining. Would you, yeah. would you care to talk about that sure. a little bit? Sure, sure. So, uh, Maybe the, this set the stage, if you will. Um, about seven years ago, um, I worked in Newark, New Jersey, and for an organization doing a lot of criminal justice reform work. And whether the issue is juvenile isolation or solitary confinement, um, the barriers that people face with criminal records, people of faith almost always on the front line. I mean, we, we need to be very clear about this. Uh, this, is not a this is not a matter of uh, um, self-congratulation. It's a recognition of, of a po public policy truth. So in, th in this instance, we were dealing with this whole matter of what do you do about the fact that you have 70 million Americans with criminal records who, when they enter the job market, they face this innocuously written, apprehensively answered little box that asks, on the employment app application, have you been, ever been arrested or convicted of a crime? And if you answer in the affirmative, uh, it virtually consigns your employment application to the digital trash can. So uh, in New Jersey, we, uh, my old organization, which is kind of public policy think tank, we came across this study called uh, the Redemption Study, literally, a sociological study that simply said this, if a person who's committed a crime, 
goes a certain period of time without committing another crime, they're no more likely to commit a crime than anybody else in the labor market. Uh, but these sociologists, uh, Alfred Blumstein, who won the, essentially the Nobel Prize for chronology, um, called it the redemption study. And, and the rate of risk where you're, you essentially become like everybody else uh, was called the hazard rate or the point of redemption. So we thought to ourselves, what would happen if we took this bit of sociology and gave it to a group of ministers, imams, priests, and rabbis, and asked them to interpret this in theological terms? And so we had a teach-in on this sociological study. And so the rabbis, the priests, the imams said, well, in terms of grace and forgiveness, in sociology it looks like the point at which the risk is equal, roughly four and a half years for robbery, uh, roughly seven or so years for assault. That looks like grace and forgiveness in biblical terms to us. And so we then begin to ask the question, well, what would happen if we got the imams, the priests, the, the uh, ministers in the state of New Jersey aligned around a ban the box initiative, taking that box off the application? Long story made short, we got a nearly all Democratic, a mostly Democratic legislature, Governor Chris Christie, who did not come to the table willingly, um, and the business community, which had lobbied against this bill so much so that it was the most lobbied bill as in lobbied against. Mm. And we got it passed in a year and a half. <laughs> and the clergy were incredibly important because what they began to do is they, they translated grace and forgiveness uh, in traditional moral terms, but they also talked talk about it in terms of public policy. And so what it meant was having Pentecostals and Baptists and the Jewish Federation, Reconstructionists, uh, Reform, Conservative, everybody kind of coming together and talking about redemption and grace in real world terms. Right? So in other words, when you get out of prison with 30 bucks landing uh, on the street in the middle of the night uh, with nowhere uh, to go, uh, hoping to be able to sleep on somebody's couch, the state essentially saying to you, we're going to give you a second chance in terms of being considered for a job. So, so, so in other words, in terms of pulling people out of this retrenchment posture, I think a lot of it has to do with literally reminding our communities, and I mean that broadly, our evangelical, liberal, progressive, whatever the case may be, of what we, what our traditions say. Mm -hmm. Like literally, what do your sacred texts say? What do your sacred traditions say? What are the moral implications of that for the stranger standing in front of you. Right. It uh, strikes me, uh, during field work, someone talked about um, putting feet on the word. That's right. Right. So um, there's a way in which this, uh, this whole conversation really uh, strikes me as uh, outlining for us that moral ideas and concepts, which I think are often understood or properly understood as abstractions, as, as ideologies, as, thing, as concepts that people hold in their heads, mm -hmm. um, actually do shape how people move, vote, uh, and engage the world, right? I would even go so far as to say the ways in which public policymakers use our language to drive public policy. I mean, it, it, when you sit down with a governor or state legislator, and they say, well, you know, if, you've, if you do the crime, you have to do the time. In other words, we believe in retributive justice. 
right? Or you, you hear legislators say, well, we believe in Old Testament justice, neither having read the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures, as you define it. But this is the kind of thing you will hear on the regular. And so the absence of a moral voice, the absence of a biblically literate voice, is life and death consequential. Because it has everything that, I mean, for example, when you have a governor, um, this is a true story, I, 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 I said, look, uh, we, we need the, the governor of New Jersey to, uh, to move on this. And I had a group of clergy who said, um, what do you want him to do? I said, well, we want him to support this legislation. I said, but we need to meet with him. They said, well, when do you want to meet with him? I said, well, uh, next week would be great. What time? I said, about maybe afternoon, 3 o'clock. I said, he'll be there. I said, you can do that? So literally, I arrive at a meeting, 3 o'clock. Governor Christie comes in. I'm there. The minister's nowhere to be seen. We sit down. We talk. We go back and forth. The minister's come in about 45 minutes later. Uh, the governor asks him, what do you want? We want this bill to give people a second chance. Um, and we support this. You need to do this. Now, meanwhile, we've got to go back to lead our churches. We're out of here. Here's the point. Sometimes our communities of faith need to act like they have power. They need to act like they have moral urgency. And that means uh, appreciating that our moral voices are important, not just in terms of justifying policy, or I should say uh, supporting policy, but we are our moral agency is impactful in terms of ideation, yeah. coming up with policy, and engaging policymakers, and helping and clarifying their thinking because they, you know, a lot of times their thinking is, is frankly, um, it may not be up to par in terms of the Yale Divinity School standard. Mm -hmm. right? they, they, they need some help. Yeah, or the Harvard Divinity School standard, which yeah. is obviously better. Um, <laughs> So, I knew you were going to say that. Yeah, I know you, yeah, yeah. Um, so this, this strikes me as, I know you're like a Yale Law grad, so I'll let it, I'll let it go. Um, this strikes me as a very practical and important conversation for, for Divinity School students, yeah. um, for the Divinity School faculty, um, for people interested in Divinity education who are probably fielding questions of what are you going to do with that, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and thinking about what it means to have an education, mm. to have a heart for community engagement, for understanding the significance of, of moral language, for understanding the significance of religious concepts, and the real world applications, the, the putting feet on, on ideas. Um, you yourself have worked um, uh, and, and taught uh, in theological settings, right? So this isn't your first go-round at a divinity school table. Um, what practical lessons or advice do you have for divinity school students who are thinking about the social justice implications of their work yeah. um, and of their education? So, you know, I, th I think one of the things that having taught uh, in a seminary in a law school is that um, I think that sometimes seminarians are not as policy self-confident as they should be. Hmm. Here's what I mean. So if you think about the Voting Rights Act, right, which is re widely regarded as the most, it was before Shelby versus Holder, uh, the most important and 
uh, consequential and effective civil rights law. Yes, Nicholas Katzenbach, the former U.S. Attorney General, um, uh, helped craft that law, but they were ministers and clergy uh, and regular people who said, this is what you're going to the law. And so my point being is appreciating the capacity on the ideation side of things, right? In other words, it's not merely that we're great at providing the moral argument for policy options that have been defined for us. We get to define what those options should be because we have the moral imagination and the moral ambition to be sufficiently large and expansive in terms of what should be done. So I, I'd say just literally having that analytic self-confidence. Number two, appreciating the need for uh, interdisciplinary engagement. So in other words, to the extent that um, uh, those who are the beneficiaries of a theological education engage with uh, you know, those doing public policy, um, the law, uh, people doing ed educational policy or criminal justice reform, and, and, and appreciating the fact that in many ways, I would argue, the language of, of schools of divinity, um, seminaries, are, represent the kind of lingua uh, franca of public discourse. In other words, the average person does not say, um, what is the cost-benefit analysis of healthcare reform or criminal justice reform? They frequently use some pretty straightforward language. Is this right or is it wrong? Does it help someone or does it hurt someone? And so the point being here is we have language that is not only good for building the case for something, but is literally the language that people use to understand what the public policy challenge is. And so just being very clear on the power of our language and, and the need to engage public policy challenges in an interdisciplinary way. I think that's really uh, critical in terms of how we build reform. So in other words, rather than having clergy coalitions operate by themselves, co clergy coalitions need, need to be integrated in terms of disciplines, right? In other words, we need to have sociologists, uh, we need to have anthropologists, we need to have lawyers, we need to have public policy folks who are embedded in our discussions so that when we frame issues, we're doing so with all the power of our prophetic traditions. Uh, and by prophet, let me, let me be clear about this. Um, as I understand it, uh, that, you know, prophets craft, crafted the books as schools of prophets. So I'm a, I'm a big- individuals. Not as individuals. So I'm a big believer that we need to operate as schools of prophets, uh, recognizing that we have a tradition. But we need to make sure that among the prophets are you know, some folks uh, you know, God forbid from the Kennedy School, maybe from the law school, uh, you know. Uh, there may be her heretics and people going to hell up there, but we, you know, we need them, right? That's, I, I think that's critically important because sometimes um, we, um, we can be off by ourselves. Yeah, I'm thinking about, uh, for instance, uh, the work being done by, by people like William Barber, right? Um, the Third Reconstruction, the Poor People's Campaign, this insistence on um, a reclamation of moral language mm -hmm. as a basis for ecumenism, for alliance, for political mobilization, the, the idea that, that the Christian right doesn't own moral discourse, mm -hmm. right? That there is coalitional, coalition potential in, in the use of, 
of moral language, concepts like redemption mm -hmm. that have right. uh, uh, interfaith um, resonance. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm also thinking about ecumenicalism and interdisciplinarity, yeah. right? Yeah. And so how, how do you understand the potential for the Divinity School, the Kennedy School to engage in bridge building work, right? Mm -hmm. you, you have the uh, William Monroe Trotter Collaborative Center yeah. for Social Justice. Yeah. How, can, how can Divinity School um, uh, students provide a kind of moral curation yep, yep. For, for social justice? And how can the presumed secularity that's often written on, I think inaccurately, mm -hmm. written onto social justice um, sort of benefit from from ground, why, why should Kennedy School students come here? That's I know right. I know they should, right? That's right. <laughs> but, right. But why should Kennedy School students come here? Someone who straddles yep. the legal world and sort of theological worlds. Well, the case, the case I make in, in certainly in my classes is that if you are contemplating a social justice campaign without a moral and ethical grounding, it is um, incomplete. Right? So in other words, public policy uh, without that is necessary but insufficient. And so if you look at any major social justice movement in this country, uh, there's almost always a, a moral basis, moral language. And the language can be, uh, could be, should be inclusive. Um, it should be welcoming, but it's, 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 it's necessary. And, and so for example, when we think about criminal justice reform in this country, um, you know, frankly, having done marches from one end of the country to the other, Literally. filed lawsuits, um, you know, wrangled judges, governors, so on and so forth, it really comes down to the moral argument. Frankly, the economic arguments buttress the moral arguments and not the other way around. Hmm. So in other words, once we've decided what is right to do, then we decide, well, can we really afford it? Or we use the money to get the people's attention so that they hear what is right. right? In other words, we have to say it's reasonable and affordable. Now, having heard that, you need to hear that it's right. And you know, when you look at some of the progress, I mean, think about this. The juvenile incarceration rate in this country has been cut by 50% in 10 years. That's a story we're not telling. Hmm. Quietly, you, 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 you have a conservative Supreme Court saying, well, when it comes to locking up children, as in life without parole, for crimes committed before the age of 18, um, we think that violates the Eighth Amendment. Now, we're going to rely on some neuroscience. The neuroscience says that the, 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 that the prefrontal cortex is not fully developed, one's impulse control is not fully developed until uh, one is well beyond the age of, of 18. So the neuroscience backs up the moral intuitions that children are in fact not adults. They don't have the same moral culpability, therefore not the same legal culpability, and therefore we need to punish them differently. That's a moral argument, right. dressed up as neuroscience. Mm -hmm. That's language we've got to claim. But the, the, the point being here is these battles have been waged using our arguments, but we've not necessarily been clear about the, the ways in which we've exercised our, our moral, urgent, uh, moral agency. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's um, just incredibly important. Right. So how are we on time? Are we? 
Okay. So I want to talk a little bit about um, the the work that you're envisioning at the Million yeah. William Monroe Trotter yeah. um, Center and sure. um, the the work that you're envisioning, the work that you're already conducting, um, how we can get Divinity School students on board, Divinity School faculty um, on board, um, your vision for um, your work at the Kennedy School and um, sure. collaborations with the Divinity School. Sure. So first of all, let me let me say for those who may not know who he is, right? So, uh, as, as uh, quiet a uh, secret as it may well be, uh, Harvard has this incredible radical activist legacy that is undernoted. So William Monroe Trotter was the first African-American member of Phi Beta Kappa, first African-American Phi Beta Kappa graduate of Harvard. Um, he was also the uh, a founder of the Niagara Movement, which gave rise to the NAACP. Much of the, many of the direct action strategies you see on your Twitter feed and on television, he pioneered 100 years ago. So in other words, this is the, the activist who was kicked out of the White House by no less a figure than Woodrow Wilson because he objected to segregation in the federal workforce. This is the same person who led the first film boycott uh, against the birth of a nation. Uh, who pioneered marches and demonstrations. And so this is a figure who looms large in Harvard's history. Mm -hmm. So when I came here, I wanted to create a civil rights institute that would honor that legacy, right? Uh, a, you know, a contemporary of Du Bois, really a, a gigantic figure. But one of the things that kind of struck me is that there's a chasm between uh, policy and practitioners between the academy and activists and advocates across the country. And so the notion was, what would happen if we could push out policy into the hands of activists and advocates in real time to precipitate change in ways to provide learning and leadership opportunities for students? Concrete example. Uh, the Bend the Box Law that we uh, discussed earlier. There was a scholar here at the Kennedy School who was previously at Princeton by the name of Diva Padgett. She wrote a book called Marked. The, in the book Marked, it simply um, um, made clear, demonstrated that people with criminal records face tremendous employment discrimi discrimination in the labor market. Mm -hmm. Not knowing who she was, literally a group of my colleagues and I, we said, you know, this is a wonderful book. This is a great piece of scholarship. We were lawyers and policy analysts. We can turn this into legislation. And because we had 30 or 40 grassroots organizations who were part of something we called the Second Chance Campaign, we literally took this scholarship and we sliced and diced it and turned it into talking points. Then we put it into sermons. We had college students tweet about it. Uh, we literally had teach-ins around this scholarship. Nobody knew who this woman was, um, but we thought that this scholarship could drive and animate and inspire public policy uh, reform. So coming to the Kennedy School, I, I thought, what would happen if we took all of this wonderful scholarship here and pushed it out and created interdisciplinary teams? In other words, what would happen if you have Divinity School students who are helping um, public policymakers talk about immigration in moral terms and having some moral clarity and, and having some biblically literate informed discussions about moral analysis? What would happen if there's a theological frame for public policy, uh, major public policy challenges? So in other words, how do we treat children 
who have been kicked out of the schools on a brutally efficient uh, school-to-prison pipeline. How do we think about that, right? In other words, is it just about saving money? Is it just about the efficiency of the juvenile justice system or not? And so what would happen if you had like, theologians and ethicists and lawyers and public policy people working on co concrete problems? My experience was in New Jersey where we, we did this, we passed six major bills in four and a half years, concretely, providing food stamps and public benefits to people coming out of prison who had been previously disqualified, talking about the morality of that with the economics of it. So in other words, bringing in the economists and saying, how much is this going to cost us? How much are we losing relative to, this, to the state of New York? And having clergy say, well, what's the impact of this if we deny food stamps to, to a, a um, household head who has children? So in other words, you have the money argument, you have the moral argument. So the idea around the, the William Monroe Trotter uh, Collaborative is to take on discrete public policy challenges, build, number two, build interdisciplinary teams, including uh, clergy and, 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 and uh, uh, theologians, ethicists, along with public policy and, and lawyers, and working with community groups to solve these problems in real time giving students leadership opportunities. So concretely, what happens when students write legislation? Right. Right? So we had students from NYU Law and Princeton undergraduates writing legislation. We said, look, we'll, we'll get the lawyers to figure out the whereas clauses, but what do you think needs to go into this? <laughs> we'll make sure it's not unconstitutional, at least not today. Okay. <laughs> um, and um, let's see what we can do. Mm -hmm. but, but the point being here is, to give you one last example, think about Paulie Murray, right? Paulie Murray uh, was, you, know, you recall, the first African-American uh, woman who was Episcopal priest. Um, she had a JSD from Yale Law School, but go back to when she was a law student at, at Howard University. And as a student, she bet her professors, we can beat Jim Crow in a matter of years. We can defeat separate but equal. She writes a paper. She bets her professors. The, the professors, as in the men, Thurgood Marshall um, and, and the litigators of Brown versus Board of Education, take her ideas. They defeat Jim Crow through Brown versus Board of Education based on her third year paper turned into a book. I tell my students that story to say, you do not have to wait till you're old and decrepit uh, <laughs> and, and, and a professor at the Kennedy School. Okay, <laughs> this change can be made <laughs> in real time. Yes. Okay, based on scholarship, on the scholarship that you're engaging in now. And so that the, the idea around the Trotter Collaborative is really look for discrete public policy challenges, put together interdisciplinary teams, and give students leadership learning opportunities in real time. And that strikes me as a very dynamic concept and model right. for uh, collaboration, right. um, increasing opportunities. I. Uh, in my neoliberalism class, we talk about the development of neoliberalism as a philosophy, right, mm -hmm. as, as an ideology. And mm -hmm. I said, you know, you, you have a group of students at the University of Chicago mm -hmm. who cook up this idea, mm -hmm. right? Literally, probably over some beers at a bar, you know? Um, and why, could, why couldn't the antidote to something like that occur in a classroom like ours, why wouldn't it? Mm -hmm. 
Right. Um, one of the things that I, I find really uh, humbling, slightly terrifying, um, but gratifying is knowing that divinity school students, a lot of them come from really dynamic professional backgrounds. Mm -hmm. um, they have very important sort of nodes of community engagement. Mm -hmm. And so I know that the work mm -hmm. we do in the classroom will have an afterlife in the future in a way that having taught at other kinds of academic institutions and, and uh, departments, I can't always account for, right? I know that the, the boundaries of the classroom don't exist mm -hmm. just in terms of the semester. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm thinking about um, what, what it means to sort of embrace the sort of dynamic genius of our students, right? Mm -hmm. Um, what can we, now I'm asking a, a sort of personal question, what can we as professors um, learn about our pedagogy and how we teach in creating classroom situations or creating research situations that allow spaces for students to harness that potential? What recommendations would you make to faculty, right, to teachers, right, to, we have a field, ed, a field, um, ed program for MDiv students, right, where they're, they're required to um, go out and do community engagements, right? Mm -hmm. So what kinds of experimentations, um, experiments can we make in the classroom and in, in our own approaches to education? So I think one of the things that I, I think about is in law school, we use the case study method and we study legal cases, mm -hmm. okay? Um, and we use a Socratic method. Mm -hmm. And in seminary, it was Socratic method with lots of lectures. But we didn't use case studies. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I'm kind of struck by is what, what happens w when we use moral case studies. Mm -hmm. So in my classes, I pose the question, if you were going to conduct a criminal justice reform campaign, what would the moral arguments be? Mm -hmm. How do we talk about the Imago Dei in terms of kids in juvenile lockup or in solitary confinement? How do you talk about the Imago Dei in terms of a coalition, right? So in other words, when people are dispirited and, and, and um, disempowered, one of the things you have to do before you can convince your opponents is you gotta convince, convince your base that they have moral agency. Right. So in terms of a, a, a case study, one of the things to think about is like, in, 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 the, in the seminary context or the divinity school context, like taking on a concrete public policy challenge or moral challenge and helping students work it through. Right? In other words, challenging them to come up with arguments, challenging them to think about how to build coalitions, challenging them to think about how do you harness the power of, of, of religious uh, communities. Mm -hmm. um, how do you um, uh, preach, teach, create a lectionary around Public policy challenges. I'll give you a concrete example. When we did the march from Selma, Alabama to Washington, D.C., so I had this, you know, this uh, fanciful notion, well, we could march from Selma to, to Washington over 40 days and dramatize voting rights. Uh, very expensive, very difficult. But one of the things I, I have to say I was impressed by, uh, the Union of Reform Judaism. Uh, I got on a call with a group of rabbis. They bought into the idea. We can carry a Torah from Selma to D.C., okay, over 40 days. Here's what happened. 3,000 or so people marched. 
millions of people engaged online, but theologically speaking, the URJ, one out of every 10 rabbis in the country participated in the march. There were marches in Jewish day camps around the country. There were lectionary readings created around voting rights mm. and voter suppression. And so this catalyzed a, a theological teachable moment within the union of reform Judaism. Okay? So my point being is, just in terms of theological education, thinking about you know, basically moral and theological case studies um, so that we, you know, we think about ways in which we can challenge our students um, to do this kind of work. And then lastly, using papers as a predicate for reform. Right? So I have two papers in my class. The first is descriptive. The second is prescriptive. Mm -hmm. As in, design your own social justice campaign. Who are the participants? Who are the coalitions? What are the moral arguments? What are the economic arguments? What interdisciplinary team will you uh, create? How, you, how do you hold it together? What's the concrete public policy or legal challenge that you're up against and, you, and that you're going to face? Mm -hmm. What kinds of resources will you develop? Now that's not probably not the, the, the grist of most courses. Maybe you can only afford to have one or two of those. Um, but it might not be unhelpful. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Mm. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.